It's Go recording on. already. Have you got your clothes on? I've not got my clothes on yet. Give me a second. <laughs> so hang on a second. Are we talking to Jim Orion? Yeah, this is Jim. Hey, Jim. And I am very good friends with Mr. Ian Crawford, cutlery safety experts. And we have met before. We have indeed. You were very kind enough to perform on our show, Social Club, back yes. in the good old days of the Zoom. This oh, is right. We, we don't had wanna... a lovely lockdown. We had a brilliant lockdown. We used to do these shows and people used to come and watch them. Yes, but I think we prefer the live stuff. Is that fair to say? Absolutely fair to say. We are in the middle. At the time of recording, we're in the middle of our spring and early summer tour with our show and getting great audiences. A bit, a bit, and for future archaeologists, anthropologists, and um, life forms on other planets, we should say this is um, April 2023. You know when they dig this up in thousands of years. That's right, and we are the Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre, and so am I, and so is he. Welcome to The Character of Comedy with me, comedian and comedy researcher Jim Judges. In this bumper episode, we meet comedian, caricaturist and comic strip creator Kev F. Sutherland. And he has drawn for many publications, including The Beano, Marvel and Oink. And he's produced and performed in many shows up and down the country, including at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe with the sitcom trials and more recently the Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre. In this episode, we hear briefly from the funniest socks in show business, and then we get to hear from the miracle worker himself, the man of mirth behind the scenes who spends more time than most with his hands inside a pair of socks. We hear from Kev, and we get to learn about his previous career from stand-up to sock puppet theatre and everything in between. I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I did meeting and talking to Kev. I think there's three of you, actually. Is that right? Because there's... There's the sock one or sock two. We'll have to get onto your proper names, and then then there's somebody behind the uh, somebody behind the curtain who who has to do all the tech and stuff. Is that right? We will allow you unprecedented access to the guy down there. Yeah, <laughs> this is good. Well, I'm looking how forward does to he meeting. Do that? I don't know how he does it, or indeed why. But Let by, us just be grateful that he does. He does. And by the way, if I interrupted, uh, which, which tour is it that you're delivering at the moment up and down the country? We are currently travelling with our show, the Eurovision Sock Contest, taking a whole interactive night where the audience get to vote for their favourite song and the whole show is on the subject of Eurovision. Yet, isn't there a problem with Eurovision? What's the problem with Eurovision? Isn't Eurovision shit? No! <laughs> no, think of the greats of Eurovision. Abba, all the greats, and they're all in the show. <laughs> this is this is good. Well, I have to say, I feel like I've done some research for this show because I was there in Edinburgh 2022 and I saw how good it was then uh, and the crowd loved it. I'm not just saying it. It was a packed room and it went down a storm and uh, I was certainly chuckling along and and, and loved it. But uh, I guess it's uh, it's gone from strength to strength. I don't know if it could be much better, but... Uh, have you guys got a, a Eurovision joke you could share with us? Eurovision joke. Well, we travel all around the countries of Europe and doing the various songs from Europe. We've got countries in Eastern Europe. Oh, I've been to Eastern Europe. Have you? Yeah. I once went to a city in the south of Poland to relax. Krakow, how I relax is none of your business. <laughs> so, no, we don't have any actual jokes. No. <laughs> This is this is good. Well, we'll talk about some of the um, material and some of your performing skills and talent and experience shortly. And I wonder, uh, I wonder whether we should. Uh, what do you think? Should we get? Should we get Kev up and find out a bit get about Kev. him? We'll, we'll and, go fetch Kev. We, I hope to see you again, maybe with a song later. Um, no. We could always have a sing along at the end. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I'll sing a song. And now this is good. for our next trick. Yeah, the comedy genius. Behind the socks, we're about to meet him. I have a feeling he's on his way. And, and as I believe Mike Yarwood used to say, this is me. This is you, Kev. Well, fantastic. And I appreciate you giving up some time to uh, talk to me. And pleasure. This, Absolute this, pleasure, Jim. This is amazing. But what a fantastic... I can't, I can't imagine that um, I'll get much better... Uh, service and introduction than uh, than that. It uh, was almost like a, a dream, not a nightmare, but a dream come true to meet the socks there. 
do they do they uh, do they have names, Kev? They don't. They're the one on the left and the one on the right. Ah, no. <laughs> that's that is the visual effect. Uh, for for listeners at home, you can't see that I'm just doing a wonderful <laughs> severed hand effect using a prop that I intended using with the socks. When we were doing the Zoom things, this is one of the tricks yeah, I discovered yeah, yeah. using green screen. Yeah. I was able to do so many things, mm. and it was such a gift. Now, yes. obviously, the, the, what the socks would ultimately love to do is be on the proper telly or be yes. on something on a screen where they're being watched yes. by millions of people. Zoom was the closest we got to that. Yeah. We had total control of it. We were able to design the environments that went behind us, do yeah. green screeny type tricks, yeah. intersperse videos and sound effects. Because uh, on stage, we do a yeah. lot, but I always keep it simple. Yes. Um, um, once the Zoom shows ended and I was then having to put it live on stage, I, I felt that like I was losing a lot because like Eurovision, I'd done yeah. different backgrounds. Yeah. But once it came to doing the live show, couldn't do anything like that. No, that's interesting, actually, because I, I, I'm quite interested in the idea of us as comedians and performers uh, having to paint the scenery with our words and actions if you like and and we do a, a pretty good job and you certainly do with with the with the socks from uh, what i remember different different costumes uh, different accents and uh, a bit of yeah. jiggery pokery that's that's right so it's kev i'm speaking to isn't it yeah hello kev, kev sutherland yes um, very old people might remember that i used to do stand-up that's where the socks came from i started off doing stand-up as me kev f yeah. And then when the socks came along, they turned out to be funnier than anything I did. And so they took all my work. Well, this is interesting, Kev. So take me back perhaps to those times, or even if you want before, uh, where, where you grew up, but also then uh, maybe how did you get into comedy? So do you want to start wherever you like? But uh... well, I'll, start, I'll start actually with a clue that uh, anybody who can see the visuals from this recording, it's a Zoom recording, folks, but uh, you can't see the visuals because you listen to the podcast. Behind me, uh, underneath my green screen, are thousands and thousands of comic books in my, my studio. My new studio is now lined with comic books, which have spent most of the last 30 years in boxes because I was a comics fan as a kid. And I collected comics and I always wanted to work in comics. And then I got to work in comics. So I have been a writer and artist for Marvel Comics and for the Beano and doing my some of my favorite work was the stuff I did in the Beano doing Bash Street Kids Adventures and if you've got some of the annuals from the 2000s you'll find things like Roger the Dodger's Reservoir Dodge that's one of mine and Billy the Cat versus General Jumbo that's one of the ones I wrote um so I wrote I still write stuff for other people to draw um but I wrote and drew a lot of stuff especially in the mid 2000s comics was the starting uh, point oh yeah and then well I was always doing a little bit of stand-up, but then comics um, struggled a little bit in the 1990s. So I made a, a very interesting career move to go from the slightly dodgy area of uh, unreliable area of comics as a living to doing stand-up comedy for a living, which, as most people will uh, confirm, is, is a potty thing to do. And stand-up comedy was doing all right for a while, and I was doing a lot of emceeing. But the sock puppets, when they came along, have been much more successful than I ever was as a stand-up. And I still do comic art now. I will show you the comic art I do. Oh, would you Adam believe it? I I have come out without my books. And they're on a shelf here. Stay there. Yep. I can confirm that Kev's just rummaging in the background there. Look at this. I'm sorry. Me no dropping problem. my headphones on the floor was probably not good audio, was it? <laughs> there you go. There is the omnibus edition of my Shakespeare graphic novels, Finley Macbeth, Hamlet, Prince of Denmark Street and The Midsummer Night's Dream Team. Wow. Available on Amazon, 365 pages of um, what I do most recently, that is adapting Shakespeare into graphic novels. Fantastic! That looks uh, that looks amazing. And you do do work with schools, Kev. You do. Um, I call them comic art masterclasses. Comic a very pretentious one. name for them. And it's teaching kids how to do what I do. I started the comic classes, God, about fifteen years ago now, and they're actually a very good string to the bow because freelance comics work. When you're like me, you know, not one of the big successful. Grant Morrison's who gets their stuff made into telly and films when you're one of the grunts who works for Marvel. I was working for Marvel when Marvel went bankrupt. That's how successful my time in comics was. Uh, a much more reliable thing has been doing comic art classes. I think a lot of writers do this. They do, yeah. you know, authors' visits yeah. to schools. Yeah, that's right. I do a 
comic festivals, book festivals. Yeah. Um, I, know I, do, I do a lot of those. And the comic class is a, a thing that I've worked up that yeah. works really well with kids. You know, in a morning, they can produce a comic. Yes. And so they'll grow up and steal my job. Out of interest, can you can you say because there's not an obvious connection? The the comic artist is working on their own in the, in their studio or bedroom, drawing away. There's no immediate audience, so the the connection between that and stand up comedy uh, isn't necessarily obvious. So, uh, are there any connections? I think that's something you find with a lot of comedians and entertainers because I'm I'm on the light entertainment end of entertainment. Uh, of, of comedy, but even the comedians who are on the, you know, something to say end of things, you'll find that they write. They sometimes write telly, they sometimes write radio, they often write books because actually books make a lot of money. So they've always been, for me, branches of the entertainment I do. Yeah. And of course, you go with the point of least resistance. I'll happily do the thing that somebody will pay me to do. Of so course. when I was trying to get on in stand up comedy, and when I started, and this is back in the 90s, I was actually making much more reliable money from writing and drawing comics for things like Red Dwarf's magazine and Zig and Zag Zogazine off of The Big Breakfast, if you remember them. I, I worked on, I've, I've worked on so many comics over the years. I worked on, do you remember Viz? Well, Viz is still around, but when Viz was really big, selling a million copies uh, a month, yeah, yeah, I yeah. worked for the comics that were sort of Viz lookalike. Well, I started Fantastic. in a comic called Oink, which was like the Beatles. Oh, like, well, hold on a sec, hold on a sec. Yeah. Would you believe somewhere I've got 10 copies of Oink and uh, I, I was I, I one should of the be, I should be bands. in a few of them. Oh yeah, well that's good with the with the the pink flexi disc on issue yeah. one. I think it was. Is that right? Yeah, I, I didn't appear for a while because in yeah. fact it took a whole year, a whole year for me to get into comics. I was sending stuff to Oink and sending stuff to Two Thousand AD, the sci-fi comic. And yes. Two Thousand AD would say your stuff's too comic-y, send it to Oink. And <laughs> Oink would say your stuff's a bit science fiction-y, Marvel <laughs> comics. <send it." laughs> Each would back me to the other until finally it was Oink that broke down and gave me work. Fantastic. So, well, this is good. I do. Uh, I do still follow Tony Husband on. Uh, oh yes, yes. He was one of the original creators, perhaps, That's or right. artists. Frank, of Oink. Frank Sidebottom was one of the contributors. Mark Riley, now of uh, Radio Six Music, right. uh, was one of the regular contributors and one of the editorial staff. And Patrick Gallagher, and the the editor was the late lamented Mark Rogers, who died oh. tragically young. Uh, oh. Not long after Oink had finished being. Uh, oh, I didn't. I didn't realize. I visited, the, yes. I visited them in their offices in Manchester, and their office was just down the corridor from Mark E. Smith's office. Uh, oh, Who well. thought Mark E. Smith had an office? Well, he did. <laughs> well, this is this is all good and tying up some interesting uh, connections. Uh, there um so thank you for that and um yeah, and i was a big beano fan i would get my beano delivered on a, a a tuesday morning back in the day and uh so this is amazing for me to be uh in front of beano and oink royalty i i even remember plug do you remember plug the separate spin-off comic yes i do that was in my era too <laughs> on the shelves behind me although i've got rid of a lot of comics because uh, when they came out of the boxes i realized if I hadn't looked at them for 30 years, I was never going to look at them. But there's some that you think, no, I'm going to keep this. This yeah, is yeah, oh, yeah. also you can't get money for them because they're worthless. No. Now, what about what about this first stand up gig? Tell me about where, whereabouts were you living? What was your first gig like? And how did you get on with um, stand up just before we move into the socks? Yeah. Well, at this point, I really have to uh, disappoint people who are looking at my youthful good looks, but I am very, very old. And I started comedy almost before comedy as we know it, because I started in the early 1980s. When I was an art student, and this is right at the start of the 1980s, we used to do college cabarets. And the buzz phrase of the time, and this was the listing in Time Out, was called alternative cabaret. There wasn't a, such a section as comedy. Uh, there was alternative comedy which is where you would find the the comic strip and the comedy zone and you, you'd find the oblivion boys and uh, alexi sale and all those early acts they would be listed as alternative cabaret because stand-up comedy still at the very start of the 1980s was bernard manning in a frilly shirt and the comedians off the granada tv show so i started that early i mean this is just mucking about at college but then uh, i lived in leicester and 
an alternative cabaret started called the Magazine Joke Space. And um, myself and a mate got involved with that. And then eventually we took it over. Um, we got the, to run the regular shows. And then there's a few of us in the, in the Leicester scene. And we started, we renamed it the Monk House uh, with a picture of uh, Bob Monkhouse from the 1950s, which is quite cheesy because he was slightly eye out of fashion by 1988. Uh, and so it was uh, slightly ironic to have this old picture of Bob Monkhouse and a club called The Monkhouse. And we had all the alternative comedy act on, who by then were now being called comedy or still slightly alternative comedy. So we had in the first year Hattie Hayridge, Joe Brand, Mark Lamar, Kevin Day... Uh, a, a very early gig by Frank Skinner, who was at the time running a club in Tamworth, which and he'd been in, doing comedy about as long as we had uh, at that time in 1988. Um, so that was I, I started doing, you know, comedy as well as somebody does who really doesn't know what they're doing. Uh, then I moved down to the southwest uh, living near Bristol and actually took time off comedy because I was breaking into comics. And I thought, right, I'm making my business now. I'm going to get big in comics. And then they all went out of business because the bubble burst for human magazines. And then I was designing T-shirts. And then I started doing comedy as well as all this other stuff because I figured, well, if comics aren't going well, I'll try comedy. This is good. And what what was your um, act like back then, then, Kev, perhaps in the early 90s uh, when you got back into stand-up? What sort of stuff were you doing and what sort of gigs were you doing? Well, the guy who gave me uh, the first break was a fellow called Steve Lount, who still runs the Comedy Box in Bristol. And he created the Comedy Box in 1993, I think. And I, I think, was his first MC. I'd started doing some rough gigs. Uh, there was one at the Fleet and Firkin, which was MC'd by Simon Pegg. So in my professional or semi-professional wave of stand-up comedy, which we can date really back to 1993, um, Simon Pegg was the first person to introduce me on stage. And then I started regularly MCing Steve Lount's clubs from 1994 on, which was the Comedy Box and another one called The Madhouse. And Bristol was a great fount of uh, comedy uh, wisdom that been one successful act had already sprung from uh, Bristol by the time I appeared. Well, the Simon Pegg, but also Matt Lucas. And they were both going up to Edinburgh by that stage of 1994, five, six. And then along came the new wave of new students. So Marcus Brigstock, who was in a comedy group called Club Seals, which when they first played Edinburgh in 1996 had nine people in the act. Uh, when they went back the following year, they'd whittled it down to three, which is a much more sensible number. And that was Danny Robbins, Dan Tetzel and Marcus Brigstock, who've gone on to their separate careers. Uh, Danny Robbins now does the Uncanny podcast. Dan Tetzel um, is a director and also appears in a lot of stuff, usually getting shot, uh, I seem to remember, when, when he's appearing in lots of stuff on the day. And Marcus Brigstock is Marcus Brigstock. And alongside them, I was the first person to say, ladies and gentlemen, Russell Howard and uh, Justin Lee Collins, about whom nobody talks much these days. Oh. But he uh, and Mark Olver, and then shortly afterwards came John Richardson and John Robbins. Uh, all these comedians were coming up, so mostly through Bristol University, but also just by moving to Bristol, yeah. uh, which is what happened with John Richardson and, and John Robbins. This is this is good. Well, in fact, I saw Marcus Brigstock in um, Munich Airport about two weeks ago. I think he was on his way to the, uh, what's that, that called? Altitude one. one that we yeah. never get invited to. We never get invited to, yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the one. But this is, this is great. Well, it's amazing, actually. Really interesting, uh, Kev, that you have, if you like, been witness to those um, changes in the world of comedy. And really interesting to hear about the the uh, cabaret, the alternative cabaret times, as you said, as, as there was that seismic shift occurring between the 1970s comedians who you described and and what was to come the alternative comedy and then and then of course this i suppose 1990s and then where we are now in the last 20 years which seems to be more uh, more of a homogenous world of stand-up comedy except for some outliers uh, who I would suggest include the falsetto sock puppets. So perhaps we should move forward to tell me about uh, how how they came about and and how did they end up being uh, your main your main act. 
well, as well as doing stand-up comedy and writing the comics, like I said, comedians also write. Most comedians will have a screenplay or a sitcom on the go. Not entirely sure if as many people have a sitcom on the go now as they did then, but certainly as the uh, 90s was coming uh, towards the end, I was writing sitcom all the time. And I've been writing sitcoms since I was a student. Obviously awful sitcom, because most people's sitcom is awful. And the reason I realised it was awful uh, was I was doing stand-up. And when you do stand-up, audience basically tells you whether it's funny or not, because you test out your material, and every performer knows this. You get up on stage, you do stuff, and some stuff you'll never do again, because it's not until you present it to people you realise how bad it is. Also, you discover things that you didn't know how good they were. And so I wanted to subject stand-up, uh, sorry, sitcom writing to the same acid test as my stand-up comedy was being subjected to. And so I developed a show, first of all, called Situations Vacant, which we staged at that club, the Comedy Box in Bristol. Uh, I just advertised for actors in the local listings magazine venue. Youngsters won't remember that there, at once upon a time, wasn't an internet. And so you had to advertise in local papers and local listings magazines like Time Out and in the case of Bristol venue and then i found actors and they came along and they performed in this uh, show and writers budding writers amongst the budding writers who contributed to our first few shows were uh, a young student at bristol university called ian morris who went on to write the in-betweeners and become one of the most successful screenwriters in british film history because in-betweeners movies are, i think still the biggest box office of any british uh, movie um and also Stephen Merchant, tall, oh. skinny, uh, Bristol University student, uh, Stephen Merchant uh, came along. And we did these roundtable writings. People would write their own scripts. They'd contribute to each other's scripts. James Dowdswell, the stand-up comedian, was another person who contributed. Um, and there were just people who just did acting and some people whose writing was not it didn't go on to be as, as famous as those people. And we did Situations Vacant a few times. Then we did a show where I devised a format called The Sitcom Trials, where the audience would see like the first half of a sitcom and then we'd leave it like on the ad break. And then they'd vote for the sitcom that they'd like the best out of the ones they'd seen. And they'd only see the ending of the one that won. So I was able to say, you're never more than 10 minutes away from something you might prefer. And it was great because it kept the audience interest. The audience interaction allowed some sitcoms to be wild, crazy, not very good. And uh, you got great variety. And the sitcom trials went up to Edinburgh. And in the first Edinburgh run in 2001, Miranda Hart, another former Bristol University student, uh, appeared in the show. Miranda Hart and Charity Trim, who at that point were in a double act called The Orange Girls. They appeared in the Edinburgh show. They appeared then in our first tour, organised a tour. I learned how to organise a tour. I mean, I say a tour. There were eight gigs, eight gigs. And uh, Miranda and Charity decided to drop out after the first four because they weren't brilliant gigs, uh, truth be told. But anyway, we did those. And I kept the sitcom trials running for a few years. Got a TV series out of the sitcom trials. It was on HTV. Um, kids today won't know that ITV used to be in different regions. And in 2003, there was still a separate ITV region, uh, which was called HTV. At about that same time, it changed its name to ITV. So we were on ITV in Wales in the West. And uh, we ran for eight weeks at 11.30 at night live so that people could actually phone up and vote in the sitcom trials. It's on YouTube. Uh, but that was what I did. And that, uh, and I, here's my point, because I did have one, that is where the Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre came from. Because after we'd done an Edinburgh run in 2001 and 2002 and a TV show in 2003, we did an Edinburgh run in 2004, um, largely because... Henry Normal of, of Baby Cow Productions had said, sitcom trials is brilliant. Get yourself out of the contract with ITV and we'll have you on BBC Three by Christmas. Well, he was talking about Christmas 2003 and that didn't happen. And 20 years later still hasn't happened. Uh, but we did a final Edinburgh run because we thought there was some momentum. There wasn't. There was just a lot of momentum towards me losing a lot of money. And I did a series in 2005 and as part of that, I wrote some two-handers, which were Shakespearean parodies. And I didn't want any of the actors to bugger them up. So I turned up to the writers' meeting with a couple of socks. I ducked down under the table, put on my Scottish voice. And they were funnier than me. They were funnier than the actors. And an act was born.
Fantastic. So did that mean then that the sock puppets were uh, a regular feature at uh, the Fringe since since then, or uh, how did Almost. they develop? Where where were you gigging then after the after then after the birth of the sock puppets? I did slots at the sort of shows where sketch act play downstairs at Great Portland Street and um, venues whose names I forget because I've not played at them for all those years. But yeah, those sort of alternative venues where they were going to have Scotch sketch acts or variety acts. Uh, the Sox played on a few burlesque bills. Um, mm. Quite often you'd find a stripper, a magician, us on a bill. And um, we worked up a full one hour show, which David, 2007, we made our fringe debut in 2007 with a show simply called the Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre. Then back in 2008, back in 2009, back in 2010 with a different show every time. And we've just kept doing that because people keep coming. Yes, yes, and you've built up a fair following, a bit of a cult following, and there are when you, when you perform, uh, you uh, fingers crossed have have no problem attracting a crowd. Certainly, when I was there, um, the room was uh, buzzing and and full, sold out. I think I've been really pleased with the new tour as well because last year uh, I think audiences were struggling to come back. But I think they were struggling to come back to us anyway. But this year was on. This has actually been whisper it the most profitable some of the gigs we've done have been the most profitable gigs we've done because um you go out for a guaranteed figure and then a door split on the door takings when you're doing the whole show yourself and uh, we're getting these sellouts and getting great doors which is fantastic this this sounds good so out of interest then how many how many nights are you doing on this tour how many different places how varied is it are you going to aberdeen one night and penzance the next or what i've are you tried doing? scheduling them pretty well um i managed to do chorley followed by newcastle breaking the journey up to newcastle from where i currently live which is chepstow in south wales uh that was a good bit of planning and the, when i say a tour i mean i've done it I, it's about 15 gigs yeah, in yeah, yeah. March to June. So yeah. fantastic. Well, the the um, area of comedy that I'm interested in, I'm interested in everything you've been talking about, by the way, including the comics as well. But the area of comedy I'm interested in is 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 character comedy, but stand up character comedy, which which I think you'll understand what I mean, which is essentially not sketch that's recorded, not sketch where you're not recognizing the audience, but but comedy where you're all in the same place, and it, it's essentially a stand up gig, but it just happens to be a character comedy, a fictional mm. uh, persona on stage. Now, my question I'm coming to is this. Who are the socks? What are the socks? Is it a ventriloquist act? Is it a stand-up? Is it character? Is it a puppet uh, show? What What definitely, do you think of it as? Definitely a comedy double act. That is the way I would describe them. Just the last gig we did was Newcastle Puppetry Festival. And I've done a few puppetry festivals and always feel bogus. I always think, yeah. oh, you can't call us puppetry because all I'm doing is the comedy double act. And my, you know, so the thing that's, that, that I take pride in first is the fact that I've written this comedy double act. That's the thing that is kind of yeah. what I think of as the hard, the hard part. Yeah. And so I've written this comedy double act and then performing it, doing the silly voice and doing the songs is, I suppose, the next hard part. Wiggling your hands above your head is the least sophisticated part of the whole show. So I would not call uh, what we do puppetry. Yes. When you see this puppetry festival, you see these people with these incredible elaborate costumes and these Trump loys and this scenery, stuff that they need a whole van to transport. And the Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre go in a bag. Oh, and what about uh, yeah, the so Scottish accent, Kev? Uh, I'm from Aberdeen. Right. I was born and raised until the age of three in yes. Aberdeen. Then they moved down, the family moved down to England. So uh -huh. I was in Leicestershire. Yes. Uh, in a Scottish household, uh, so I was getting a Leicester accent, but I would then come home and be corrected by my Scottish parents who would point out I was saying things wrong. Good. So we can't accuse you of uh, cultural appropriation or casual racism uh, in yeah, this I, case. I'm amazed fewer people do. But no, the socks pretty well must have sounded must sound like I must have sounded when I was three. And what about, you mentioned uh, writing. I'm, I'm interested in the writing process because comedians take different approaches to that. Mm -hmm. And you were saying earlier about the, the audience acting as a co-creator and certainly confirmation, uh, confirming whether something's funny or not. But what, what process do you go through? And maybe even uh, how many different shows have you had with the puppets? Uh, but what's your writing process? Right. The different writing processes that I've experienced um, 
are interesting to contrast for me because stand up, I would stand up and talk to myself silently in a room and then memorize the things I'd said, but I'd never write it down as a full script. So, which is a real pain because I've subsequently wanted to see scripts from 10 and 15 and 20 years ago and I haven't got them. I've got a sentence which doesn't, it, you know, it'll say mahogany, uh, <laughs> planks. And it's like, oh, but unfortunately for that, that season, I knew what those words meant. And now I have no idea. So that's a real stupid way of working. Don't do that. Uh, but then if you write things out, you will quite often end up with things in a written way. I've seen a lot of stand-ups will have things that are script written. Yeah. And then when they say them out loud, those aren't spoken words. So you have to change them into yes. spoken words. Stand-ups are supposed to sound like something you just thought of. People in an audience regularly will think, I mean, you see a comedian like Eddie Izzard is a really good example, and Ross Nova, a really good example. It sounds like they're just making it up. And a lot of things they are because they're very good at spontane spontaneity. But when you're doing a whole hour, you mostly don't do a whole hour that's brand new every night. You, you do stuff that you've done before because it gets better and better the more you do it. But it's got to sound real and natural. Then, of course, I was doing the sitcom writing, and that was different because you were writing words to put in other people's mouths. But then I was doing the stage show of the sitcom writing, Sits Back and uh, Sitcom Trials. And there, you'd listen to the actors do it, and you'd go back to your script, and you'd correct your script so that it was like a real person. So the socks get the best of both worlds. I write things for them so that, you know, I can sit there and do the thinking and the conceiving and the going back and correcting. Then they go out there and perform it in the previews, which usually for an hour long show begin at the Leicester Comedy Festival in February. And if you're lucky, if, like Leicester and, and Brighton, I'll do two, sometimes three shows in a row, one, two, three days. And then between show one and show two, I'm spending the day rewriting the show. So I go back the next night improved based on what worked the day before. And some of those audiences in Leicester in the February, which is the run up to an August Edinburgh show, seeing a show that's radically different, some, almost entirely different from the show that ends up being performed in Edinburgh. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting, actually, and and what a great festival uh, the Leicester Festival is. Um, uh, you mm. you have a connection with Leicester from what you were saying um, earlier, and uh, and I think you're right. A lot of performers will use it in that in that way, certainly either as a launch pad or as a, a sort of a stepping stone towards um, towards Edinburgh or the other festivals. That 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 sounds good. And and, and what about uh, what about that? So you're saying that it changes a lot. Do you find that that's because you the socks are improvising and is it, is it the in-between stuff that you're uh, that you're throwing in that you then find yeah. works and you're adding in or what what happens there yeah i don't know how many people find this i think i think a lot of people do when you're doing a, a long run and edinburgh is the best opportunity for a long run you get to perform for 25 consecutive nights which is a rare thing to be able to achieve anywhere else if you're a normal act and every subsequent night doing this hour every night the show gets longer so you have to chop things out and the show gets longer because of laughter. That is when it's working perfectly. Uh, we will do routines where we're doing the basic routine and then something will happen. Uh, the audience will laugh at that bit. And of course, if you, a sock puppet and a stand up will get the same thing, you look at the person who's responded there. You show the, you show your response to it. You get another laugh. There will possibly be a thing to say there. And before you know it, that's 30 seconds has been added on from one laugh that you didn't even know was there. They laughed at a, maybe a costume. Quite often with socks will pop up wearing a different costume. They'll get a laugh and the, the socks will find a thing to say about that. And yes, regularly we will find we've brought along 60 minutes of material and we have to lose five minutes of it in the first few days for reasons like that. Yeah. And then we'll be losing entire routines, entire numbers, um, otherwise, your show would be an hour and a quarter long. But of course, you're left with the best stuff. So yes. by the end of three weeks, you've got a, a really show. good hour. If yes. you started with a really good hour, bonus. Yeah, yeah, well, that's right. That's right. Um, what about, are you, uh, dare I suggest, um, are you jealous of the socks? Uh, do you wish it was you? Do you sometimes think, oh, I, I wish I was as funny as them? Uh, I maybe, are you tempted to go back to uh, being yourself? What, how do you I'm feel really, about I, that? 
obviously I'm really grateful to the socks because they are able to do things that I can't do and they they make people laugh and I as a stand-up I realized my ceiling yeah. and I've seen this with a few acts who write funny things but they don't have a funny persona and I don't have a funny persona I'm quite dour well not dour but school I'm schoolmasterly and stern or, or I don't know and also you can see the fear on my face I think wow. if, if it's not going well I'm tempted to do stand-up again but I I know what happened last time and it wasn't disastrous yeah. I wasn't bad yeah. I was and still am adequate yes um but you know you just you you know when you've been alongside people and you, you feel their magic yeah you, you, yeah, you see yeah. someone like Mark when Marcus Brigstock and Russell Howard uh, appeared and I, I I think I emceed their first solo gigs as stand-ups and you're looking at them and you're thinking I don't know how someone does that they just have to be that they have because Russell Howard was 18 years old and you know he was a, he was a young seeming 18 when he came up on stage and was introduced and he was running around like this blue ass fly and he was saying funny things but you couldn't actually ultimately I think remember or recall any of the lines he'd said because that wasn't what he was selling he was selling him yeah. he was funny bones he is funny yes bones. yes and you can see that right from the start and marcus his funny personality i actually remember a lot more of marcus's lines marcus was more the sort of person who was all going to write also going to write yeah. plays and novels and he wrote funny lines but that personality that coolness that demeanor coupled with that writing you just saw it right from the start and you thought i, I mustn't kid myself I'm not that. I could yeah. say that. Right, no, that's right. that's fa that's fair enough. And and what about the uh, the future for the socks? Then is it a matter of they they remain fresh and you remain uh, enthusiastic about them because you're always thinking of new ideas and new scenarios? So what what, what what's yeah. the future for them? Do you think? Well, you know, we're sort of uh, again being realistic about the the prospects of where they might go. When they started, I thought these guys are going to be on the telly. And so did a few people, including John Plowman, producer from the BBC, who got up from the front row of my show and shook my hand, which smelt of socks, and said, that's really good. We're going to get you on the telly. And he did. He got me on the telly on a TV show called Comedy Shuffle in 2007 or 2008 on BBC Three. And I thought, this is it, the start of great things. And it wasn't. It was it was the end of great things. That was that was the longest run we had on the telly. We were on Comedy Shuffle. We were on another BBC Three thing, which was filmed down in Bristol. Scott Mills interviewed us. And we've done little bits of telly yeah. since. Yeah. This time last year, we were picking up the Radio Times and the TV Times and looking through it. And we were seeing our photo because we, the Scottish Falsetto Sock Puppet Theatre, were used as the promotional shot for Britain's Got Talent. We filmed our Britain's Got Talent bit on the stage of the London Palladium in January 2022. And we didn't quite die on our arse, but we did get buzzed off before our two and a half minutes were out. And I think we just weren't bad enough. I mean, had we been hilarious, great, we'd have got through. Brian Damage and Crystal got through. And then they had a rough time when they had their second appearance. But, you know, they got to that next stage. Oh, and um, uh, Noreen Skinner, uh, stand-up oh. comedian, was working with a, a, a three-person act, uh, these three yes, women who yes. did this knockabout uh, Andrew Sisters thing. That's right. And they were brilliant. That, that yes, was a perfect yes. use of three minutes on stage. Yes. So that was exactly what the Sox didn't do, in fact. Yeah. But we got cut out of the edit, and I've never understood why, because, of course, if you try and get back in touch with them, the runner who is handling you uh, is now off working on another show, and they don't even know what happened. So um, this time last year, we thought uh, we were, in fact, promoting our Edinburgh show and the, the tour dates that went with it uh, as stars of Britain's Got Talent. And then we weren't. <laughs> Indeed, so, I, I think I remember seeing you in the promo and looking forward each week to your performance coming up. And of course, it uh, yeah. it, it didn't. But but yeah, maybe uh, t TV, as you say, might not be the future. But I mean, um, I mean TV, let me just point this out. If anybody's listening who happens yeah. to also be a TV producer, you're missing out on, on the best thing ever not putting the Scottish Falls Centre Stop Public Theatre on TV because you get two for the price of one. You get this fantastic act with 15, no, we've done 12 all new hour-long Edinburgh shows. Yeah. We've got an immense amount of material. We're absolutely brilliant. Our show is the shape of a TV screen. Indeed. Why, why are we not on the telly? I do not know. Indeed. But, uh,
what, what about uh, bringing it back to the live stage, which I'm interested in? And, of course, there are pros and cons, aren't they? Um, of course, television, you've got a mass audience and uh, it's well paid if, if you're lucky. But live gigs uh, can be great, can't they, as we know? And, and, and I often think, you know, there's nothing better than that feeling of uh, heading home after a, a gig or, or even when you come off stage and, and the audience want to speak to you and uh, want to find out more. But but then there are the not so good gigs. Can you, can you say anything about some of your favourite gigs? And maybe just because people do like to hear about them, one or two of the not so good gigs, if you've ever had any. Yeah. Well, favourite gigs have been the ones we've been doing recently. We do a thing at the end, uh, which I don't know why I didn't do this forever. But only for the last few years, I've been inviting the audience to come up and take sock selfies. So they'll come up and take a selfie of themselves with the sock puppets. And it's quite a gauge of a successful show how long it takes for all the people to do sock selfies. You can't do it in Edinburgh because you've got to get out in a hurry for the next act to get in. So it's a real luxury when you've got the whole theatre to yourself. You can't do it when you're in a bill on a comedy club. You can only do it when you're doing a solo show. Uh, but yeah, we've been doing sock selfies. And of course, people will say nice things while they're doing the sock selfies. And that's fantastic. So that has been great. And I can't think of an hour long solo show where it's gone badly. But no. I can, no. or touch wood, oh, so I've jinxed it now, haven't I? But when we've been on a bill, when we're on a regular comedy bill, and that's where most people struggle, obviously. Yeah. When you're on a regular comedy bill, you have less control over the night. I mean, the act before you can can change the atmosphere of a room. Or, and this is a phrase that I think a lot of comedians are wary of using because it sounds like a dreadful cop-out, but, you know, not your kind of audience. Sometimes, especially with a novelty act, a character act, they can be not your kind of audience. If their expectation is stand-up, in-your-face stand-up, yeah. somebody who's going to work the room. Like, like when I was an MC as a stand-up, I was very, I thought it was quite good, at work in the room. You know you've got to, you're going to have uh, difficult punters who seem to be there in order to bugger up everybody else's night. And that sort of audience is not our kind of audience. The socks have difficulty working in rooms. They can't see the room. Yes. And uh, I do it all by sound. They're also, they're not that in your face. You know, they're not a stand-up bloke. Yeah, and men, women, all genders can have the what it takes to deal with an audience. It takes a certain thing. I mean, it's not just blokiness, but a lot of the aggression that's coming from the audience quite often is. Sometimes it's not, sometimes it's head parties. But you know what I'm talking about. There's a dynamic, a confrontational dynamic. Um, anyway, when that happens, that can be a shit gig. Yes. Or they can ignore you. Yeah. And th our worst gigs have been ones where they've not got it. And then what happens is what's there on the stage is just a big tartan set with some things moving about. And if they start talking over that, even though we open, you know, with a bit of talking, a bit of lots of badinage and a musical number, um, you're lost. Yeah. You are lost. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've seen some great acts die on their ass. So yeah. I know oh, yeah. this is yeah. okay and it's par for the course. And the socks, it doesn't happen to the socks much because no. usually we will pop up and that is funny. Yes. But I've got to say, when you're on the stage of the London Palladium in front of 3,000 people who are more used to uh, soppy singer-songwriters with a story about dead parents or a performing dog, they can sometimes not get you. Yes, yes, I can, I can see that. And it's interesting what you say, Kev, because, of course, we do. And I, I cast myself, I've got less experience than you, but I, I do many of the festivals. I do Edinburgh uh, uh, most years. And when we put on our own show and we can control what goes into the programme and on the flyer uh, uh, and maybe the poster, then, of course, people who are buying tickets and turning up, you know, it's well signposted what we are doing and they're already making a decision, aren't they, to come and see something a little bit quirky a bit silly but lots of fun yeah. but as you say if you end up being one act of three and it hasn't been signposted and the audience don't expect puppets or character uh, then we can as uh, perhaps alternative acts uh, sometimes struggle a bit more if, if the audience are just expecting stand-up yeah that's right it's um, confounding people's expectations can be a great thing and uh, can be the making of many acts, but also not being what they expect can be yeah. the death of an act. 
But yes, uh, interesting, really. And, and I suppose, yeah, finding your audience and performing to those folks who are, uh, are going to um, buy into your stuff is is, is key. What about um, this then? Uh, thinking about other uh, comedians who might be thinking of maybe uh, writing a show for uh, Edinburgh or maybe even doing something a little bit different. Um, have you got any uh, tips and pearls of wisdom for these up-and-coming, annoyingly young and talented comedians coming along behind us? Yeah. The hard thing to find, or it might not be hard to find, but one thing you've got to find is places that you can perform uh, that will be open to the sort of thing you're doing. Uh, Bristol, as I say, was a place where I uh, grew up with my comedy. And there were people doing nights where you could do stuff. And a lot of people did a variety of uh, experimental things. So sound out where any people are trying comedy or open mic nights with music and poetry nights. Actually, a lot of comedians have come up through poetry nights. And of course, back in the day, I mean, I'm talking 50 years ago, before there were comedy clubs, the folk club circuit was actually where people like Max Boyce, Jasper Carrot and Billy Connolly uh, came because that was where that was what existed. Yeah. And so, you know, the person before you would be singing about dead miners and then you would come on with your banjo fill in the gaps between songs and that was where comedy found its way in so finding places you can perform you might have to try you know might have to kiss a few frogs and uh, play at a few interesting nights yeah. uh gong shows are shit don't do those i mean that's say i with the socks have only ever done the manchester gong show and we get gonged off every time i don't know why we do it <laughs> I, I think we did i think we did it because we were passing yes but, that's a really good example of people not getting you. It's that it's that there's one reason why we might do it, uh, and um, I, I suppose from my point of view, but it's a truism, surely, that stage time is really what it's all about. And although you don't want to yeah. spend time on the wrong stage, you've got to you've got to uh, book the gigs, and you 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 can't do it um, at home. You've just got to you've got to be on stage to refine what you do. Yeah, I mean. I am I, quite jealous of people who are young for every reason. But uh, when uh, I was starting stand-up comedy, I was really young in my very early 20s. In fact, I was a student. I was 18, I think, when I first got up and tried saying funny things on stage. And so because you're clueless, it doesn't matter. You've got time. You can get up there and just experiment. And I've seen some people do some marvellous experimentation. And if it works, great, you might have a career uh, yes. being Vic Reeves. Yeah, Russell Howard was a stand-up comedian when he was 18. Because when he was 18, the Vogue was for stand-up comedians. Uh, in fact, the Vogue was about to be stand-up comedians called Russell. Um, when I started, there wasn't a Vogue. And so, you know, I'm, I'm about the same age, I think, as Simon Munnery. And when he got up, he was doing character comedy and he was doing a, a, a wannabe punk. And then he was doing art house dada things with costumes. And then he'd perform on stage with an opera singer who would do the punchlines. And, you know do what you do and i envy anybody who can really say i'm just going to do anything now i'm going to do something the world has never seen because the great thing about if you're so young you can you can get up there and think you're doing something the world has never seen and you're never right but <laughs> you might be so gutsy that you get up there do something that you think the world has never seen and the rest good. of the world has, has forgotten that they've ever seen it before and then suddenly you're, you're the greatest thing good 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 on you and what do you think? There might be some folks, uh, and possibly rightly so, who are thinking, crikey, uh, who are these guys talking about the black and white days? Because um, it's all about, well, YouTube, uh, which is old fashioned now. It's all about TikTok. Can we, uh, uh, will the socks ever appear on TikTok? Uh, well, the socks did a lot of stuff on Zoom when right. we were doing the pandemic. And um, like I say, we had a good pandemic because yeah. uh, we bemoan the fact that june 2021 once people could go to live shows they stopped coming to our zoom gigs however i do know people who do a lot of stuff on twitch and i know people who do stuff on tiktok and that interactivity it's a different sort of antique interactivity it's not like a live audience but no. it works for a lot of people yeah. and so um over the last 15 years now 
YouTube has been finding comedians. I mean, there was a guy who was opening, who was in Edinburgh, the hour slot before mine, and nobody had heard of him. And we were all saying, well, he's not going to get an audience. He's going to be giving up after a week. And he sold out every single night because this YouTubing, had, this guy who'd never performed on a live stage before, but it got him an audience of millions of people, enough of whom were able to fill a room in Edinburgh every night. So frustrating to people who'd been schlepping around the circuit. But what it is, is a different style of comedy. The yes. interaction with the audience is what stand-up is all about. It's what sketch comedy largely is about, although there's a history of sketch comedy just written for the telly without an audience, so that's another different thing. Um, and the comedy I like is done live in front of an audience. I, I make comedy to be laughed at right there, right then. Well, that's good. And uh, that that's interesting because, of course, yeah, transferring what you do on TikTok and short form video onto stage um, is, is would be a challenge for anybody. Uh, that's that's interesting to hear about. Um, I wonder if there's um, before we finish, is there um, anything else you wanted to uh, mention that we haven't talked about? Um, I don't think so, Ashley. You, yeah. you, you may have dredged. My entire knowledge of anything to do with comedy. I mean, as you can tell, give me the opportunity. I'll, I'll talk for Scotland, uh, but in a bizarre Midlands accent. Yeah. And um, I, this is an area that I love investigating and thinking about. And I love, of course, hearing other people's um, ideas on this because I'm old. And so there are new things for me to hear, but they will only come from the mouth of a youngster. So uh, youngsters. Tell us all about comedy. Do comedy the like of which we've never seen. I, I tell you what, I get disappointed by any comedians doing just what's been done before. I mean, That's right. says he doing an act which might as well be Elvis Costello. Oh, sorry, Elvis Costello. <laughs> Abbott and Costello crossed with Malcolm and Wise, crossed with the Mighty Boosh. But, you know, I think I'm being original. And uh, to an extent, <laughs> sometimes I am. But, you know, when stand-ups get on stage and they're just doing the same as the other... When they do a, like a photocopy of this, the popular stand-up yeah. comedian of the day, because they think that's what will turn them into the next Josh Widdicombe. Yeah. That's what will get them on uh, Mock the Week. Uh, well, it won't get them on Mock the Week now, will it? I, I That's the most dispiriting yeah. thing. But of course, they do not become the people who end up on telly. No. Uh, the people who end up uh, making it almost always have something really big and good and original and special. And I would, I, even Michael McIntyre and Jimmy Carr and people you might not like, they, at, even Mrs. Brown's boys, they actually have something yeah. that somebody else didn't have and they do it better than anybody else. Hate them or love them. That's what I wait for. Well, Kev, as far as I know, certainly uh, your act is uh, unique and it's certainly the only uh, Scottish falsetto sock puppets. I'm not sure if there are any Welsh falsetto sock puppets or, or English. Have you, have you have you had any uh, competition uh, from, from anywhere else? I can't think of another act like yours. I'm very lucky, touch wood, so far yeah. that nobody's been stupid enough to try <laughs> well, doing that's, what I do. That's right. Do you ever do you ever lie awake at night or wake up at three o'clock in the morning and think, "Hang on a sec, is my life really hiding behind a curtain <laughs> with two so two socks on my hand?" Does it ever worry you? Uh, when it's when it's a, when it's not as good a gig as the great gigs, I might come away thinking that, but. At the moment, it's great. And also, you see, when you do stuff like this, as long as you take videos of it all, you're leaving a legacy behind. And so every bit contributes to the big stockpile of stuff that uh, right. someday will disappear from YouTube and we'll never know where it went. Yeah, well, I, I someday think... The, someday there'll be one of those nuclear <laughs> things that erases all these discs and all this electronic media. And you'll, suddenly you'll regret not having carved your act in stone. Ouch! Yeah, you you might you might be right. Let's hope it's not uh, not not before this year's Edinburgh Festival, anyway. But uh, <laughs> this is this is this is all not as soon as we've all paid our deposits. Um, this is all all great, Kevin. Long long live the uh, long live the socks. And and I think ultimately, yeah, if uh, we are entertaining uh, the the crowds, if you are making people laugh. And people are having uh, some fun, lots of fun, and an escape from the real world. One thing's for sure. I think that's what the the, the, the socks provide. Uh, so long may that continue. I really appreciate your time and, sh and, and sharing your insight. And I, I've really enjoyed, if I could just say, 
finding out about the longevity of your career and indeed the, your, your experience uh, in those different periods of stand-up. So that, that's been really good. Uh, so I'll just do a formal uh, thanks, Kev. been great speaking to you and I hope to see you again soon. And I look forward to catching Ian Crawford live as well as talking to you again, Jim. And if anybody wants to find out more about the socks, scottishfalsettosocks.com. That's where they are. Fantastic. I'll be sure to mention that and try and put a link uh, in in any any notes. But uh, yeah, until next time. Oh, uh, I don't suppose they're, they're there, are they? Um, have they gone they're to not. bed? They've gone They've to bed. They've gone to bed. Yeah, it's way past their bedtime. It's too, it's too much of a rigmarole. <laughs> Wow. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Thanks again to comedian and caricaturist comic strip creator Kev F. Sutherland. Make sure you check out the website scottishfalsettosocks.com and if you want to find out more about Kev's impressive artistry, pop along to kevfcomicartist.com. Now, that's the official end of this podcast, but as ever, after we finished talking about the socks, uh, we had a few more things to say about the world of comedy in general. We talk about comedy rooms, arenas, uh, versus compact comedy clubs, and comedy stage personas. So if you might be interested in another five minutes of free bonus material, then listen on. Or if you've had enough, feel free to stop here and head off now to mow the lawn, do the washing up, or maybe carefully and thoughtfully tidy your sock drawer. So until next time, thanks for listening. how it's uh, how it's evolved and I, I think it feels to me like it's you know stand up is a bit more homogenous um there are there are still wild and wacky people experimenting there is still sketch but i'm not sh- i'm not sure if it's as experimental as it as it was so it's hard to tell maybe the the thing is it needs well it needed telly to alert people like myself who weren't going out yeah. and seeing these yeah. things at clubs yeah. in london yeah um to know what was what and yeah. so there's been a few experimental shows across the comedy shuffle the show that we were in in 2007 2008 was one such show where they had comedy double acts uh, they had Kristen Schaal and uh, the guy she did a double act with you know Kristen Schaal American um not sure if I do uh, who sure I do. she's in Flight of the Concord and oh yeah yeah uh, and Kurt Bronhowler I think his name is and they did a really uh, challenging experimental routine called Kristen Charles is a horse. Kristen Charles is a horse. Look at her dance. Look at her dance. Kristen Charles is a horse. Google it on YouTube. Kristen Charles is a horse is a, an amazing routine because that's all he does. He just sings that and she just asks about looking like a horse. And he does it again and again and again. And they would do this live in clubs. And the, the thing was to push it as far as you could, see how long you could go. They would have people throwing things, they would have people walking out, and then they would have people getting it. And then once people had got it, they would unget it again because it would just keep going on and on and on. Now, on Comedy Shuffle, it just didn't quite work. Similarly, Dave, he plays Brian Gittins, the Brian Gittins character who's, mo- who's recently been in the film Brian and Charles and has been in the Ricky Gervais things. Well, um, I worked alongside him at a few places. We did uh, Bright- Brighton uh, Comedy Festival. And the Brian Gittins characters was the same. Brian Gittins was doing deliberately bad comedy. And the challenge was for the audience to get it or not get it yes and i i've been there when someone in the audience would be heckling because they hadn't got it yes and other people were on the other level of understanding what this guy was doing this yes. actor was doing this bad character and then the bad character was doing bad comedy and it was playing with the room in a really sophisticated and challenging way yes. brian gittins appeared in comedy shuffle and they edited out the gaps so they edited uh, out the pauses, which is what the, the embar- they edited out the embarrassment, they edited out the awkwardness, and they couldn't get the life. Telly can never capture no, the life. No. So Telly didn't get Brian Gittins. I can see that. And of course, uh, who was Steve Coogan's Duncan Duncan Thicket? Duncan Thicket, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's it. I mean, Steve 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 Coogan obviously dabble, uh, dabbled with some some great characters uh, back in the day. I think he's changed and evolved and uh, perhaps moved away from uh, from from stand up. I saw his uh, stratagem tour last year in the big uh, NEC, you know, an, uh, arena. I was a bit disappointed to be honest. I saw I saw um, I saw Al Murray do character, of course, as the pub landlord. I've seen him a few times and and thought he was, you know, still still 
at the top of yeah, his well, game. Yeah, well, he was one of the many acts who I had the privilege of emceeing at the Comedy Box in Bristol. And you see, the thing about the Comedy Box, perfect comedy club. Only 150 people can get in there. And so when you go to see people in a venue like that, you're seeing them at their best, yes. peak of yes. interacting with an yes. audience. Many of the people I saw, like I introduced Peter Kay, I introduced Ross Noble, I introduced Al Murray when he was going through this stick of uh, coming on as the pub landlord, but he was dressed as a huru out of Star Trek. <laughs> and the gag at the time was uh, that he'd thought it was some other themed night. <laughs> and, you know, that sort of thing is fantastic. And when someone is making that whole room of 150 people, you know, you, we use that cliche, palm of your hand. Mm -hmm. thing is, mm -hmm. 150 people are palmable in, yeah. in one yeah. hand. Subsequently, having seen Peter Kay, I've not been to the venue where no. Peter Kay's performed to 3,000 and more people, but I watched those on telly and it's a different thing. It is, it the, is, yeah. The, the person yeah. has to have that comedy greatness. Peter Kay yeah, is an absolute great. Ross Noble is an absolute yeah. great. Yeah, you're right. And they have to have that greatness to work with that room. Yeah. But when you're in the presence of those people and just 149 other people, yeah. That is indescribable yeah. and incomparable. That's right. I think you're right. I think it's the energy, it's the atmosphere. And I think to a certain extent with those big gigs, it's hard to separate, you might say, the fame and the uh, preconception and, and and the expectation because, whoa, you know, this is Peter Kay. It's off the telly. I already know he's funny. Rather than uh, seeing somebody you may or may not know. And and there are some venues, aren't they, which are just perfect for comedy in terms of their, their compactness, the reverberation, the closeness. Uh, and there are some venues that are a nightmare. Uh, well, but, have, yeah. have you read uh, Dara O'Brien's book, Tickling the English? No. Have no. you not? Oh, I, I can see it on the shelf from here. Uh, Tickling the English by Dara O'Brien yeah. is a very good uh, insight into comedy because he's done it basically as a tour diary yeah. and uh, the subtext is trying to understand the English personality, the characteristic and, and what, what, what being English means. Yeah. But he talks a lot about the different rooms and rooms that work for comedy and the circumstances that can make things work and, and make things not work. Mm -hmm. And from the point of view of someone like Dara O'Brien, who also I've seen in a 150-seater room, he... It communicates well the gaps that you have to bridge. And in fact, he refuses to do places the size of which Peter Kay does, even though having been a fella off the telly, he can fill them because yeah. he says he can't do funny. He, yeah. he can't see the whites of their eyes. It's yeah. not cliche he uses, but yeah. you can't interact to a certain degree. Yes, yes. Then, then you're doing a different thing. You mentioned Steve Coogan and he and uh, Ricky Gervais are people who uh, have learned to use the medium, to use these different mediums. And yeah. so when Steve Coogan was working in front of 150 people, he learned to do that. And he's also written and spoken about in interviews about when he didn't do that. He did a very good radio interview I heard recently when he was talking about when he did Edinburgh for the first time and he and Frank Skinner went up. They were sharing a flat. Frank Skinner was working hard and Steve wasn't. He yeah. wasn't. Uh, working as hard. And he went off, and I think the next year he didn't do Edinburgh. He did a cruise ship and he was dying on his ass because he was lazily still doing the stuff that he was finding easy. He yeah. wasn't challenging himself and he was on a cruise ship reading a two day old newspaper when he read that Frank Skinner had won, won the Perrier Award. Ooh, yeah, the year yeah, before, yeah. He'd, be, he'd been funnier than Frank Skinner. That's and right, this was about that's the time right. that, I, that Frank yeah. Skinner did our little club in Leicester. A year later, he had it hammered home to him that he wasn't funny as Frank Skinner had become because Frank Skinner had worked hard. He hadn't worked hard and he learned from that lesson. And he's now he went on to be one of the hardest working comedians and was rewarded for it. But every different medium. That's right. That's right. Work differently. So when there's not an audience there like Mid Morning Matters or Alan Partridge on film, yeah. it's a different thing. When he writes those books and the funniest books. Well, stand-up comedy, um, a mixture of the things we've been discussing, selling your personality and selling yeah. your material. And yes, Steve Coogan, uh, like I found with the sock puppets, I write best for these double acts, for these characters. And this is what I was doing in the sitcom writing. It's what I do in the graphic novel writing as well. Writing these characters, the way they interact is where the comedy comes from. A stand-up comedian is taking ideas and presenting them and presenting them through their personality. So quite often, expounding philosophical notions direct to your face in, in that one-to-one -one way. That's a stand-up thing. Yes. It's Yeah, 
they're different genres. They are. And some people can do them. Steve Coogan is an excellent writer and an excellent mimic and yeah. an excellent actor. Yes. But yes, I, I don't see him as a stand-up. I don't think he could no. do stand-up. No. I don't know where he'd start. Uh, one one last one I might throw into the mix. Harry Hill, have you ever met him? Have you ever worked with him? Or would you have any views on him? Because I, I haven't been able to work out yet whether Harry Hill, as daft as it sounds, is a character comedian or an exaggerated persona of himself. He's very rarely caught out of character, put it like that. But have, yeah. you, have you ever worked with him? I have introduced him on stage but didn't get to know him. And, um, yeah, that... Interesting. He he, because he does a lot of uh, chats on the sofa. Yeah. You'll you'll turn on and he'll be on yeah. something like GMTV, yeah. which is quite surprising. But always as Harry Hill. Always as Harry Hill. That's whereas, right. Whereas with uh, Al Murray, Al Murray is quite happy to uh, step away from and and leave the pub landlord for the stage. Uh, mm-hmm. But if he's being interviewed, he's happy to be himself. Uh, so I find it. Just I don't know about strange. Uh, just a, it's an yeah. interesting case in point that Harry Hill, nine times out of ten in public, is always Harry Hill. Uh, but I'm sure in in, in private, of course, uh, he is. Himself. There's a Venn diagram you could draw, plotting the sort of things that the character would say and the sort of things that the person would say. Yeah. And Harry Hill overlaps more, so that the real Matthew Hall, yeah. quite possibly, things bubble up in conversation that are Harry Hill things. That's you know, right. a, lot of, a lot of people I worked with, like I worked with Miranda Hart uh, quite a lot doing the, the sitcom trial show and her observations, um, she would just turn the dial up a little bit further for stage Miranda. Because stage Miranda is sort of standing there looming over you and saying, oh, isn't this funny? Um, and in conversation, she wouldn't really be doing that because she wouldn't, you know, the spotlight's not on you. Yeah. But you'd yeah. still then say the same things like, you know, you hold the same opinions and they'd sometimes come out in something like that voice. I know a lot of comedians who are quite like that. They're yeah. a slightly dialed down version of the thing you see on stage. That's right. That's right. Definitely. Definitely. And that 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 in itself is interesting. Yeah, those comedians, perhaps not necessarily like Miranda, but the authentic comedians. So maybe somebody like Frank Skinner, who 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 is more or less the same as they are off stage, but they're still have to be a, a dialed up version of themselves because uh, if you were just who you were or, or, or off off stage, it might not quite work. But can you think of a comedian? Let me let me just ask you this question before we go. Who's who's basically the same off stage as they are on stage, or or is very close to that? Is it, uh, who, who can you think of any examples of a comedian who's more or less the same on stage as off? I'll put you I'm trying to think of people, and I'm thinking of people I know. Russell Howard. Oh, yeah. When you think of him as on, it's yeah. like someone's flicked a switch and yeah. he's gone on stage. Yeah. Uh, and he's not so hyperactive when yeah. he's off stage. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, Marcus Brigstock sounds like himself, but then when he's on, he's delivering. Yes. Yeah, there's a snap. There's a snap. There has to be. There has to be, doesn't there? Because I guess I guess our our conversation here is an exchange, but but when you're on stage, you know, you're in charge, you've got to hit the punchlines, you've got to captivate the audience. So it so it has to be it has to be a bit different at at, at least anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is Yeah, well the the phrase in your face is an interesting one because I've uh, I think I may have been guilty of talking to people in the way that you'd talk to an audience. And yeah. they recoil. Oh, yeah. It's like yeah. it, it is inappropriate yeah. to yeah. come on that strong yeah. uh, when you're just uh, all round, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so I appreciate your time, Kev. Uh, great to meet you. And also the socks, of course. And you, Jim. Say and thank you to them. from the socks. Yeah. They say goodnight. <laughs> thank you. That's Cheers all I right, wanted. Jim. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Bye. Bye. bye.